Welcome back to the Autoblog Podcast. I'm Greg Migliori. We have an awesome show for you today. We're going to make this pretty simple. Formula One in Vegas, auto show in LA, some interesting news that we'll, we hope you think is interesting, and we've been driving some pretty cool cars. We'll get right to it. That means senior editor Jeremy Korsniewski and news editor Joel Stocksdale, both somewhat fresh off planes in the last, well, number of hours. Uh, let's lead off with you, Jeremy, because you literally were in Vegas 18 hours ago. Yeah. How's it going? Uh, I mean, sleep deprived, but otherwise no worse for the wear. Max won the race, but there's a lot more than that. Uh, a lot to unpack. First race in Vegas, and you were there, so we got to kind of get into that. Joel, you're back from L.A. Uh, you've been back a little more, I imagine. You look a bit more rested, a little more like you've had time to recover. Uh, the L.A. Auto Show, you know, pretty big deal this year. Or was it? <laughs> Not really. Not so much. It's arguable. All right. Sounds good. Um how about we jump right into Vegas? So far, Jeremy, you and I have been talking about how there were free Heinekens in the streets. Um, sponsored I, by Heineken, I guess. The podcast could be sponsored by Heineken. That wouldn't be a bad thing. Um, I, yeah, that sounds great. Yep. I, I have never been anywhere in the world where there's just random promoters pulling out ice cold beers, the beers that are kept on ice, and handing them to people as they walk by on the street. That's that literally will only ever happen in Las Vegas. I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't have a, a large history of attending Formula One races. I've been to a couple here and there, um, but yeah, I've never seen that before. Um, checking IDs, absolutely not. Just handing them out. Um, I will say the downside to that, however, is you. It, I mean, great, they hand you a beer while you're walking to the uh, race, but there were discarded, half drank beer cans everywhere as people were walking through the uh, uh the entrances and getting their tickets checked because you can't take an open drink through the line so good and bad i guess um lots of aluminum to recycle um so that's you know a a funny little anecdote that kind of describes Formula One in Las Vegas, different than anywhere else. Um, I don't think you're ever going to see, um, I don't think any other city has quite the same vibe as Las Vegas. And I read ahead of time that the uh, race organizers are kind of hoping that it becomes like a tentpole event in the, in, you know, in the same line as Monaco, um, someplace where they, they've got, you know, this Every, you know, once a year, every year, they make this crazy thing and turn it into a like destination event that race fans can't miss. Um, that's what they're hoping for. It started off very auspiciously. Um, the very first practice on the track, the very first time Formula One cars are driven at speed on their, um, you know, just ridiculously expensive brand new racetrack. They get four laps in and suddenly a metal drain uh, gets pulled up out of the ground. Um, I variously heard it was the drain itself that uh, that popped loose. I, I know that they were all welded shut um, in advance of the uh, that's, that's common that standard operating procedure when you set up a street track. They weld the drain shut. Um, I heard, however, um, I don't know if it was the drain but there was rumors that it was actually the concrete around it um, that, that failed. 
um because that you know it's got a metal ring and then on you know inside the metal ring is the metal cap um the metal cap was was very firmly welded into place i heard that that's not what broke i heard that the uh the concrete that was holding it was potentially a little shoddy um so crew workers went through and and checked all of the drains like 40 drains or something that had been uh welded this way um i heard that the number was eight that they decided to work on again um but the the upshot of all of that was that free practice one was legitimately just plain canceled after like four laps on the on the race so could you imagine people i I was sitting next to somebody um uh his wife um they were both there but i was i was talking to them his wife uh spent three dollars or three thousand dollars per um ticket for the ticket and the um and the accommodations at their hotel um which i don't recall which place they were staying at but three thousand dollars a piece they showed up there all the excitement in the world, all the pent up demand, the energy of getting to the race. The very first time the cars speed around the the Vegas track, one of them basically breaks into little bits because of poor track management and, you know, a a planning problem on the uh, Vegas GP organizers. Um, A lot of disappointment there. Um, What ended up happening after that, they canceled first uh, free practice one, they announced that free practice two would be delayed for safety reasons, obviously, as they go and check all those uh, metal covers. Um, I was, you know, I was there in person. Um, I was planning on waiting, planning on waiting, planning on waiting. They never updated us and told us, you know, okay, this is when it's going to happen. Ultimately, I decided to get up and leave because they wouldn't let me take my laptop into the race for obvious reasons, I guess. Um, so I had to go all the way back to my hotel room to write a story on Autoblog, um, you know, detailing the uh, cancellation. So I went back to my hotel, wrote the story up, and that's when I heard that all of the people that were there to watch the race were being told they had to leave. Um, I don't know exactly what the situation was, but it was some sort of decision made for security and safety reasons. Um, there was like some sort of shift change. It reminded me of so you're sitting on an air you know you're sitting in an airplane and they say okay you know we've got a delay we've got a delay we've got a delay and then they come out and tell you okay now the um now the airplane staff has to get off because they passed their line and how long they're allowed to work that's the impression that i got what was happening in vegas they had security people they had police they had to get them out of there and do some sort of shift change and so they couldn't allow all the public and all the people to be there as security and police forces and everything were going through a shift change. So the only choice was to tell everybody they had to go. Um, and so free practice two had was delayed to the point that I got woken up at 3 a.m. Vegas time, so 6 a.m. Eastern, um, with race cars flying around the track at uh, you know 200 miles an hour at three o'clock in the morning is when it, you know, it actually took place. Um, so tons of irritation, tons of frustration after that first day, every headline you see is, oh my gosh, this is a disaster. This is going to be terrible. The good news is once that was done, everything went off without a hitch. That was a terrible, terrible start. Um, it even ended up in a, a lawsuit for people that, uh, um, paid all this money. 
a lot of people got tickets only for that first night. Um, and those people were rewarded with a $200 gift card uh, for, I think, to buy merchandise or something. They didn't want a gift card to buy merchandise. They wanted, you know, they wanted to see the racing. Um, you know, I, I'm hopeful that maybe Formula One will do the right thing and uh, reward those people maybe with a, a ticket to next year's F1 Grand Prix or, you know, something to make the situation right. Um, because I feel bad for the people that, um, that didn't get to go any other day and really didn't even get to see any racing action. Um, so moving on from that, the actual, uh, qualifying was awesome. Um, it is exactly like you see on television, except words cannot really describe the feeling of the race cars, you know, flying by on the track. Um, when they're trying to set fast laps, they're, they're going all out doing everything they can. Absolutely amazing. Uh, the race was an exciting one. Um, a, a friend of mine uh, that is such a Formula One fan, he moved to Texas to be near the uh, Coda track. Um, he was texting me during the race and saying, like, ah, I'm afraid it's going to be another procedural like Monaco, not going to be much passing. It was not like that at all. The on-track action was awesome. Um, there was a I think culminating in a last lap pass uh, Charles Leclerc, um, past Sergio Perez on the very last lap uh, to take second place. It was extremely exciting. Uh, cheers all over in the crowd every time there was a, uh, a passing maneuver. Um, there was only one serious accident. Lando Norris, I believe, got um, uh, taken to the hospital after uh, going off track and going into some barriers. Um, that brought out a, a safety car situation. Um, a, a lot of the negatives that people were thinking did not come to pass, which is true with, you know, when, when you're, when you're, when you're thinking about how things should go wrong, usually those things that could go wrong, they don't always go wrong. Um, you know, it's not that everything went off with it without a hitch, like we talked about, especially that free practice one. Um, but they were super concerned about temperatures turned out to be not a big deal. Um, the only time it was it was a, a bigger deal is when the safety car came out, temperatures started dropping in the tires. Um, some people, we, you know, we overheard um, race radio people talking and saying that, uh, you know, it's like an ice skating rink out there with those with those cold tires. So there was a little bit of, of drama. Um, but honestly, in the end, I think what everyone's going to remember is just how good of a race it was. Um, and I think some of the issues um that really put a sour taste in people's minds early um will most likely be addressed in the coming years um they it's not going anywhere they've got i think a three-year contract um but they're planning on they're hoping to make it significantly longer that, than that make a regular stop um they built um pit uh pit paddocks that are not temporary. They're built in place. Um, they're saying that they might turn them into like a little bit of a Vegas destination for race fans, um, like a museum showing some, um, some things that people would want to go see on the, when they're, when they're visiting the area. So, um, I, it, it definitely was not, it definitely was not entirely smooth, but I think it has the, uh, has the potential to become a really good tentpole event for, for the sport. I think you mentioned like uh, comparisons to Monaco. I uh -huh. think like in American Monaco would be a good, like, you know, like 
target for Vegas. I think it uh, it really adds a dimension to uh, the F1 calendar, obviously, especially in the United States. Um, you know, I think strategically, it's a good move, frankly, to have an event more on the western side of the country as well, despite the fact you know, they really, the timing was weird. I could understand some of the logic of trying to have it, you know, somewhat appeal to the local market where you could go to a show in Vegas at 10 o'clock at night, local time. That's not unusual. Um, and also when you kind of swing the clock forward, you know, you that's like early morning in Europe where yeah. a lot of F1 fans will be having some coffee and just getting into it like we do here. Yep. yep. So yeah. I don't know. I agree. Um, the timing was far from ideal for those of us, you know, traveling from the East Coast. Uh, so getting into Vegas and seeing, oh, a 10 p.m. race start, that's literally one o'clock in the morning for me. Um, there was a there were a couple times where I saw people taking little naps in between, you know, qualifying events on the second day. Um, it, it was not an ideal time frame for for me as a media person to go cover. Um, I was absolutely exhausted. I got home and I, I literally slept for nearly 12 hours. Um, just, wow. just passed out, covered me up on a lazy boy, did not open my eyes again for 12 hours. Um, would I go again? Absolutely. It's a super cool place. Okay. Um, it's, it's a neat place to, uh, to see a race. Um, to say that the city embraced it is only partially true um the city itself embraced it like everywhere you went the, the monorails the buses taxis everything um every hotel lobby was like converted into uh you know formula one paradise um that however means of course that the uh the people who traveled to vegas for things other than racing um did not get catered to the way that they may have expected to be catered to um and we talked a little bit uh, Greg earlier about this, there was a lot of commentary from workers in Las Vegas that they were promised, um, you know, huge numbers of people and they didn't see it. Um, I think a lot of money was spent, but not a lot of money was spent on the rank and file Las Vegas kind of things that, that they were hoping for. Um, so, I mean, good and bad, the city raked in a ton of money. A lot of pockets were lined with cash, just not all pockets, you know, it didn't, it was not evenly distributed. Um, and you know, that, that was a little bit of a downer for, you know, people who, people who live paycheck to paycheck and, and rely on tips to, you know, pay their, their house and, and rent payments. Um, they did not see the windfall that was, you know, rumored to happen. Um, but a lot of money was spent. I mean, it was, it was Las Vegas, but it was definitely formula one city um during that period nice well said uh i think that's a good uh segue uh to talk about uh la joel stocksdale news editor he's been uh hanging here on the phones uh let's talk about what the la auto show felt like this year number of interesting reveals nothing truly mind-blowing you know we're talking camry forrester the ionic 5n which we had kind of seen before but we got sort of like an auto show debut in the us that's really slicing the onion pretty thin lucid gravity we uh that was a pretty important crossover but you were there um we've talked a lot about in through the lens of like what is an auto show these days how detroit felt which was kind of okay how Tokyo felt, which was freaking awesome. 
And then this. So just what was the mood like there in the City of Angels? Well, I think Tokyo spoiled a fair number of us because that really felt like a pre-pandemic auto show. That had loads of reveals from lots of automakers. Some auto some automakers had multiple cars shown. I mean, when was the last time that you remember like four sports car concepts being shown? I mean, not not production cars necessarily, but like something that is very much like for and by car enthusiasts. Los Angeles was not that at all. It was, well, the fact that some of the biggest reveals are very much like mass market heavy refreshes. Toyota Camry and Subaru Forester were kind of two of the big reveals of the LA show. And that's, that's just not as exciting as cool sports car concepts and off-road vehicles and things like that. The number of attendees was still felt quite high. Okay. So there were definitely still media there. I'm not entirely sure what public days are going to be like. It's also interesting. A number of automakers have pulled out of this. We already knew that Stellantis was pulling out. They say because of issues caused by the strikes. I, I don't know how much, uh, how much that really played a part or not, but it was definitely a notab noticeable absence, especially when Stellantis had what would have been possibly the biggest reveal there, the Ram Charger plug-in hybrid, or I suppose Ram would prefer us to say the range-extended electric Ram as their debut there. But Porsche bailed out of the LA show as well. They were not occupying their special little room on the LA Convention Center. No, that's funny. That room there is quite memorable. From when I, I've covered the auto show there in LA in the past, you like it's like up the stairs, kind of in that atrium, and you're like, oh yeah, here it is. But just as a side note, insider journalists. Yeah, and actually the because the la convention center especially for the auto show is split kind of across two main halls yeah and the one that was closest to the media center was fairly empty this time in comparison with past years it was basically ford kia and lucid in that one hall and that was that was it and they had sectioned off part of that hall because of the fact that there were fewer reveals over there. Now, something that was really interesting, and perhaps somewhat understandably, because the Gravity SUV is... That really is the most exciting thing that really came out of LA, at least in my opinion. Because it is just a completely new model that we haven't seen yet before. Yeah. And it's going to be a significant one for Lucid because it is a very popular body style for a much more affordable price than their sedans. But their stand was completely swarmed from basically the moment that car was revealed 
until the show closed. Like, it was, there were just people crawling all over. They had a couple of gravities on display, but even just kind of milling around in that booth, just lots and lots of people. So there was clearly quite a bit of interest and excitement around the gravity. Something that you just did not see at any of the other booths. There was a fair bit of milling around over at Hyundai's stand, especially around the Santa Fe, which is understandable. It's a very, it's a really neat SUV, but it was still a little bit of a surprise for something that was shown and revealed months ago, even for like the North American market. What um, I'm curious when you think of like, you know, like you have the Forester, you have the Camry as well. Those are like a little less exciting versions of say like, you know, the Gravity, which was, you know, quite, quite, you know, attractive looking as well as, you know, the Ionic. But, um, you know, those are definitely more like eat your vegetables kind of vehicles. People were interested in those, I take it. I mean, the readers on the site seem to, you know, click on them, if you will. Uh, what was the mood like there for those, you know, more like high protein vehicles? Yeah, I think things may have been a little bit quieter around Camry and Crown in part because uh, Toyota didn't really have kind of a big presentation. And technically, Camry and Crown had been shown yeah. just a little bit earlier in the week and, and Toyota had their own big reveal event for the press. So that may have dampened that a little bit. Forrester had quite a few people in attendance. And I mean, the thing is, is that Forrester and Camry in particular are such high volume, big sellers for both of those companies that they are very significant models for them. And Forrester in particular getting a, well, both of them really getting hybrid models. Camry already had hybrids available, but now every Camry will be a hybrid and they're more powerful hybrids and you can get the hybrid with an all wheel drive system. Forrester, while they didn't actually show the hybrid there, they did announce that in a year from this new one coming out, there will be a hybrid Forrester, which I think is a very important cool. thing for them. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I've been consistently shocked that it's taken this long for Subaru to do much in the hybrid space. We've had a couple of Crosstrek hybrids, um, a more conventional hybrid earlier and then a plug-in hybrid a few years back. But neither of them lasted particularly long and the specs were always a little bit disappointing. The yeah. the uh, non-plug-in hybrid Crosstrek, hy Crosstrek, that was probably the most disappointing because the plug-in one actually did have a decent amount of electric range. Still really really slow but that also can describe a lot of cross tracks the last several years <laughs> yeah but i'm i'm glad to see that that's coming from subaru oh and actually sort of a surprise thing was the honda pro the honda prelude concept yeah, that was, was cool. on the show floor which i had already seen in tokyo but it was nice to see it in in the u.s also and while Honda PR would not confirm one way or the other about where the eventual production prelude will be offered, it would seem like it would seem likely that it will be offered in the U.S. 
if they're going to show it here as well. How do we all feel about the uh, news about uh, Hyundai partnering up with Amazon? Two-day shipping for free, right? You know, you just get your Hyundai uh, delivered to your driveway. It's not quite that simple, but I think it's creative. I think it's very interesting. Yeah. I I don't know how many people are really going to buy a car through Amazon. Oh, I wouldn't underestimate that. I think, I mean, just thinking of my own buying hab- habits, I just bought a TV on Amazon because I could do it in three clicks and... Uh, I got an email from the New York Times wire cutter. I subscribed to the Times. It arrived. I started flipping through it. I've been looking for a TV for a little while. They're like, this is the best TV, 4K. It was the right size. If you don't, if you're somebody who likes sports, but you don't want to think about your TV experience more than you have to, add to cart, boom. I it's gonna arrive next week. And I actually had I done a little more research. I could have gotten it from Best Buy quicker. I just, it required a little more like thinking and going to the right configurations on Best Buy and I think Walmart even. But Amazon maybe do it like that and it was done. So I don't know. Was, I think people might t- do it that way. Did your TV cost something in the five figure range? Well, it cost $300, I think. I yeah, mean, I don't there's, know. A big, I, there's a big difference between $300 and $30,000. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we can't overlook the fact that some people just hate walking into a car dealership. Yeah. They don't want a salesperson trying to tell them anything. They don't want to. I think where this could prove to be successful is in the same way that now every car, every car company has a build-in price has a, you know, find, find this vehicle near you, you know, that, that you can do. And those have been very popular with, with buyers. Um, they, they want to know all the things before they walk into the dealership. Well, this, this is maybe even the next step. This is for the people who are like, you know, tell me what the price is. Don't have the manager check. Don't, don't do this. Don't have the financing person walk up to me, blah, blah, blah. If this helps take a few of those unpleasant steps out of people's you know out of people's mind to make it easier to buy a new car it it might be attractive to people you know the, the same people who get their groceries delivered instead of walking to the grocery store um and you know we're i don't i don't i'm i'm avoiding using the term lazy i don't mean that but buying a car is stressful for a lot of people if this helps you know reduce their stress levels a little bit by just saying like yeah, I picked out my car. I did this, and it, and it's a one-stop shop. Like it's it's, you can do the same thing from Hyundai's website, right? Um, but how many people, you know, a how many people know that? Um, you know, you and I, and and you know, people who are into cars probably know that. Um, but I I don't know. I think it could be a little bit of a coup for for Hyundai to you know open up this partnership, and you know maybe some people will choose to buy Hyundai's for this reason, like simply because, man, I, I just hate dealerships. I hate car dealerships. The entire process is blah, blah, blah. Am I being ripped off? You know, blah, blah, blah. Maybe, maybe this will help alleviate some of that. I don't know. Now you can save obviously some money by being very well read into the process and negotiating. I'd like to think I saved several thousand dollars just by 
very nicely just countering the salesperson with the lower offer the last time I bought a car, which is almost six years ago at this point. So it's doable. And I also was pretty well read in having known what like the invoice price should be in like right where I thought I could push this guy and nicely and still make a good deal. I don't think everybody necessarily wants to do that. I didn't want to do it, but it was like, you know, a means to an end, if you will. And then when you think as well, and this is where I came down and in a TV or a microwave or whatever is different because there's so many different places you can buy these things. I guess there's a lot of car dealers too, but like you can price shop on your phone and get a pretty good sense in like 30 seconds, right? You know, there's this thing called Google. So it is a lower stakes environment with the cars, with car purchasing. It's even though you can dig into that and I think you can and should, uh, it is a little more opaque. It's a little harder to do, especially if you're not like into like reading Autoblog or reading some of the really like consumer oriented sites that have different pricing data available. Like that's not something everybody's going to do. So you might say to yourself, well, I knew I was going to send spend $35,000 on XYZ Hyundai. I can do it. I think and then it'll be ready for me at the Hyundai dealer three miles from my house. Maybe I could have saved a couple grand, maybe I wouldn't have, maybe I won't even know the difference. I think for some people, you already know the car is gonna be expensive. So playing around the edges, like to me, two grand is like, you fight for that if you could get it, but maybe you don't know you could get it or you don't think you, you can get it in these deliberations, if you will. So I, I don't know, Amazon is so ubiquitous. I think it's, I don't think it's gonna be a game changer, but I'll be very interested to see how this pans out. I mean, I can certainly understand trying to make the buying process nicer and to avoid dealer pressure. However, mm -hmm. I just have a hard time imagining somebody really willing to drop twenty to $40,000 or maybe more on a vehicle that maybe they've never, like, even seen in person they're just like no oh, yeah you know what i need a car well i can just buy one here on amazon and i'll just buy a car and i mean maybe that's also partly just me just feeling like you really shouldn't buy a car that way that like you actually should see the vehicle in person sit in it and make sure that it is something that is comfortable and like you actually will want to live with for multiple years and spend that level of money on because you, it's it's a big purchase it's from a lot of people the second biggest purchase that they're going to make on a regular basis on any sort of semi-regular basis um so i i'm a little bit skeptical on that front but I could maybe see if somebody like went to a Hyundai dealer, liked the vehicle and was like, oh, if this is a way I, if I can get this car, but avoiding actually dealing with the dealer, I could maybe see that. Yeah, it'll be, it's different. You know, they're, they're, it's a different buyer. Um, I can't even, I can't even fathom the idea of getting an entire week's worth of groceries delivered to me. I, I want to go to the grocery store see what's on sale, pick out my cut of meat, you know, I, I, I just, I still do that, you know, and, and to me, that is, I don't want someone else picking my things out for me. Um, but there's a lot of people who do that. I don't get it, but you know, it makes sense for certain people. There's, 
I think we can't underestimate the number of Americans who view their vehicle as an appliance. Um, mm -hmm. Hyundai is good enough for me. You know, it's fine. I, I don't think we're going to, I don't think they're going to sell a lot, a lot of N branded models. Um, will they sell, you know, a lot of Elantras? Maybe. I don't know. Um, we'll, we'll see how it goes. I, I could see it being much more popular on the lower end for people who are like, I need a car. This is a car. Um, not the people who are like, I want the blue stitching and I want the this and I want, you know, the, not for people who are, who are picking out everything. Um, it, it used to be super common. Um, like my parents, I remember we'd, we'd go to the dealership. You would pick a car specifically off the lot. You know, like, oh, we want a Jeep Cherokee. You go and you're like, um, yeah, we want a sport model. Um, what colors do you have in stock? Oh, we got a red, we got white, black, and we've got teal. You walk and you look and you're like, I kind of like the teal. And you, you drive away in that car. Um, so I don't know. We'll see. I, I think the ease at which you could potentially do shopping could, could be good. Um, you and I, Joel and, and Greg, and probably everyone who's interested in cars enough to listen to the Autoblog podcast, we're all going to be like, holy crap, no, I would not buy a car online without sitting in it and driving it and blah, blah, blah. But I, there's, there's probably enough people out there that will do that and want to do that, that um, it'll be a successful experiment, I think. We'll see. You know who would absolutely crush with something like this, I think, is uh, Toyota or Honda, which offer a lot of brands that have, you know, many repeat buyers uh, people who perhaps have purchased these vehicles just because it's a Honda or it's a Toyota, you know, that quiet quality reliability. Um, it's, you know, and that's, that's a great way to buy a car. I think it speaks to how well thought of those two specific brands are when it comes to, you know, those areas and areas where people feel, um, like they would seek those things out, you know, and the difference I think between, ordering a box of, you know, markers on Amazon in a car is not just the cost, but also the emotional element. And also like, I mean, you guys know this, like literally every car can be different. It shouldn't be, but you might get in the car and you're like, uh, the infotainment just doesn't work on this one. And then they're like, yeah, no, we're having some issues. We see this in one out of five cars. I mean, some of the press cars we get randomly, there's something wrong with them. You know, not too much, but it happens. Well, so, it de depends on the brand too. If it's a Land exactly. Rover or a Jaguar, maybe more likely to uh, yeah. <laughs> just not work. Yeah. All right. So let's, um, that's LA. Let's do a quick rundown. I do have the editor's picks. Would you guys like to know what they are? Yeah. Breaking news. All right. Breaking news, beep, beep, beep. So in fifth place is the Toyota Crown Signia. Mm -hmm. Fourth place is the Kia Sorento. Third place is the Toyota Camry. Second place is the Subaru Forester. And then in first place, by a fairly uh, considerable margin, is the Lucid Gravity. So with that, I will toss it over to you, Joel. You were there. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, that matches what I was seeing. I'm yeah. Lucid Lucid had the advantage of, you know, having the only like completely totally new thing there. Yeah, and that that plays a big role. What and, did you and, think? Go ahead, Jeremy. Oh, I was going to say. Plus, when you look at the rundown of those vehicles, the gravity is the one that stands out. Is is like in 
an ultimately super desirable thing. You know, it's, it's the coolest product. It's not, yeah. it's not the one that's going to sell the most, you know, but it's, it's like one of these things is not like the others. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, that is not surprising at all to me. Oh, and something else that I wanted to bring up that I thought was kind of interesting was I feel like the fact that two of kind of the big mainstream vehicles there, Forrester and Camry, are not like super huge refreshes, kind of feels yeah. like a sign of the industry starting to shift toward electric powertrains. Because this Camry, while it does have a significantly new front end and rear end, and they're all hybrid, it's still based on the current chassis, and you can still and you can still see that very clearly. And it definitely feels like this may be close to the final generation that's internal combustion for Camry, and probably similar for like Forester, that it feels like they're kind of running out the clock on what they've got left on these internal combustion vehicles. Reminds me a lot of the F-150 and the Mustang uh, that have received awards from us recently where they were billed as very new, but then it's like, well, it's really more like a generation and a half sort of thing. Um, I agree with you. I've noticed that for a while. I, I think you're spot on there, Joel. Yeah, Mustang and F-150 are good examples. Even like Honda Accord is technically a really heavy refresh, very similar to Camry. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, a lot of these vehicles are still very good, even in their mm -hmm. like outgoing generation. So being a heavy refresh is not necessarily a bad thing, but it does feel like a sign of like, yeah, we're kind of at the end of sort of this type of vehicle. Cool. All right. Well, so that's Vegas, that's LA, that's buying cars on Amazon. Let's run through some other news. We've got some kind of interesting um, uh, news and notes this week. Uh, UAW document, this kind of came out as part of the ratification process, that the Wrangler EV is due in 2028, and then we have midsize trucks coming in 2027. Every now and then you see this, uh, like if you read some of the original source materials, there'll be like something just kind of in there, unrelated to say news, but it's like reinforcing you know, a condition of the deal. In this case, it's more like where they're going to build these things, um, which we sort of knew. However, we didn't really know the timeline per se. And what's interesting to me here is, you know, we're talking about the Wrangler EV is not going to show up till 2028. That's like five years from now. And then the trucks, the midsize trucks are 2027. Now, it's the very end of 2023. These could be model years. This could be getting here a lot quicker than perhaps that sounds like on paper. Still a bit of a, a little bit of a hike, let's put it that way. And I think it is also interesting to have them like sort of confirm, confirm this again. So um, yeah, I mean, I think I think an all-electric Wrangler is it's a great play. I mean, just taking it at face value. And then, you know, the mid-sized trucks. Um, you know, I think that's a Honestly, that's a while. I feel like the way Chevy and GMC have been making these things since 14, they might want to, you know, look at that as far as like getting RAM into that space. So, I mean, I don't know, Joel, what, what do you think about this this news? Well, I mean, electric Wrangler, I'm sure, is like one of those things where like 
it's well like the electrification of most of the auto industry it's inevitable yeah and i'm not completely surprised that it might be a little bit before we get the full electric wrangler Mm -hmm. since jeep does have other electric things closer on the horizon for one thing i i'm kind of waiting to see more about the jeep recon you remember that concept from like just a year or so ago that sort of like fancy wrangler (laughs) that's electric um something a little bit more refined a little bit more road going but still with like removable doors and still very off-road capable maybe arguably more of like kind of a defender competitor um and also a grand cherokee electric model uh that kind of sporty high performance version that they have slated so it makes sense to me that they would dip their toes into electric first with something that is not their uh prize their their prize pig kind of vehicle like they don't they don't want to make the wrangler people too angry uh too soon kind of get started with vehicles that don't necessarily have the uh very kind of set in their ways sort of crowd like and also wrangler is something that they can get away with running longer without like a super major update because it's enough of a niche vehicle that and has enough of kind of an image that people really really like that that can that can soldier on for a while so that that makes sense to me um and for the mid-sized trucks uh that does feel a little bit far off because i mean we'll we'll see how long that class stays popular like it's mm-hmm. it, it has definitely grown in the last several years uh, by all means and is getting more competitive by the day which uh yeah i don't know it just it does feel like that's a little bit on the late side for that particular market since it's still dominated by tacoma but chevy and ford or gm and ford are both staking bigger claims in that segment there's only going to be so much left over to fight for and like jeep gladiator already doesn't have that huge of a portion of that market probably in part because it does have some of the compromises that a wrangler provides it's kind of a little bit noisier it's a little bit more crude than some of the other options in the market but yeah that that seems a little bit far off but i think i think the jeep plan that makes sense to me. I think it's pretty far off. Um, I I would love to see Jeep take electrification a little bit more seriously than they seem to be doing. Um, I I appreciate the four by E's, uh, the fact that they are the best selling plug in um, plug in hybrid vehicles in the United States. Tells me that there's probably demand for something um, potentially fully electric. Um, I think one of the problems with that is, you know, it, it's range is going to be an issue. Um, when you look at the range that the um, the Wrangler Four by E gets on its um, on battery propulsion alone, in comparison to the size of its battery, it tells you that its uh, miles per gallon equivalent is not very good. Um, it's pushing a brick with huge tires and you know off road tires down the road. There's a reason that. 
you know, every Tesla you see sits super low to the ground and, you know, doesn't, you know, isn't fitted with, uh, um, with off-road tires, you know, there's eco-friendly, uh, uh, design there. Um, so I would like to see Jeep do something with the Wrangler with, you know, better electrification. I get the delays. I think Joel is absolutely spot on that, uh, the recon is probably going to fill that role, um, for people who want something fully electrified, um, in the, the mold of a Wrangler, um, which I think is really good, but, um, I, I mean, you don't want to ignore the Wrangler nameplate, um, and, you know, not give buyers an option, um, if, if that's what they're looking for. Um, the flip side of that argument though, is it's not like any of, uh, Jeep's major competitors are running to electrify their off-roaders either. Um, it's not, you know, there's no rumors of a fully electric Bronco coming out. There's no rumors of a fully electric forerunner. Um, you know, it, it's these, these off-road vehicles. And, I mean, the Hummer doesn't even count because it does not play in the same class. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's, it makes sense that it's going to take that long. Um, as Joel said, it's also disappointing, um, you know, understandable, but disappointing to me that we're talking five years, you know, 2023 to 2028, five years is a really long time. Um, it'd be cool to see them prioritizing this a little bit more, especially because they've telegraphed that they're thinking about it with the Magneto concept, um, that, that they've been taken out to Moab, um, the last several years. Um, so it's not like it's not on their minds. They, they, I I'm sure that they're, you know, doing everything they can. Um, but that, that timeline seems, whew, that's a long time. Five, five years, um, is a, a long time to wait. If you are a Wrangler, you know, if you want to replace your current Wrangler, but want to go electric. Um, yeah, it's, that's a little disappointing, but as, as Joel explained why it's also understandable. I could also see possibly waiting that long. Cause as you, as you mentioned, Wrangler is not something, it is not shaped in a way that is conducive to either good fuel economy or good electric range. And I could potentially see them being like, okay, this is going to be a real challenge for us. We might want to put that off just a little bit longer than some other options because we may want slightly better battery technology and or slightly more cost-effective battery technology to kind of develop and solidify uh, before they launch a Wrangler just to make sure that it has decent range and decent uh, cost and um, decent efficiency. <laughs> there's, there's probably a good chance that they're going to go down the same path that they're doing with the Ram Charger. Um, it would make a lot of sense to, to not have a battery so big that you can get 300 miles of range in a Wrangler. Um, it might make a lot more sense to be, you know, fully electric in that the wheels are motivated solely by the, you know, electrons and motors. However, a, a, you know, a range extender package that, that might be more likely, um, to succeed in a, in a Wrangler type vehicle. Cause you're still going to be able to, you know, they're like, they like to say, Oh, unlimited range, blah, blah, blah. Every car is unlimited range. When you say that you should, that it's unlimited after you fill it up, you know, it's kind of a little s s silly marketing 
tactic that they're yeah, using. A, but... a regular EV is completely unlimited as long as you have some place you can recharge it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's that, they're saying like, oh, unlimited range EV because it, it's got a gas tank. Well, an EV has a battery too. I mean, it's anyway. Um, that wouldn't surprise me if if you know. I, can you imagine how big the battery would be in a Wrangler to give? 250, 280, 300 miles, like just absolutely massive because they're so inefficient. Um, but the electricity is a great way to move an off-road vehicle, you know, super great torque. And, you know, so there's a lot of things that make sense and there's a lot of things that make absolutely no sense. I think um, thinking of it as, uh, as a, um, a range extended um, electric vehicle um, makes probably a lot of sense in this case. Yeah, I could even see that maybe slipping in just a little bit before the fully electric one. Yeah, we'll see. All right, sounds good. So let's uh, let's move over to this. Is a little inside baseball, but I to me this is really turning into a quagmire for General Motors. The head of Cruise just stepped down. He was one of the co-founders. He took over as the CEO again about a year ago. Uh, since that time, it's Cruise has been kind of a dumpster fire. They've had crashes. They've had, um, you know, issues with their like autonomous driving permit in California because their vehicles aren't working right. Um, and GM is dove headfirst into this. Like they, it's like a part of it's an independent company nominally, but GM owns and controls it. The former president of GM, Dan Amon, was running the company for a while. Like. GM was really into this entity, and it is not going where I think they want it to. Uh, at the, the they, and they've been on sort of a parallel track with Ford, which invested into another company uh, that was called Argo, and they um, they pulled the plug on that Argo AI. I'm sorry, and Ford invested like a billion dollars into that like five six years ago. Earlier this year, Ford's like, we're out of here. We're not doing this. People don't seem to want autonomous cars. We're out of here. GM doubled down. And since that time, I don't think anything has gone right for their efforts with Cruise. So yeah, this guy, like Kyle Vogt, that most of you have probably never heard of, he's out. Okay. But when you look at all this other stuff going on, I mean, I don't know. To me, this seems like a really ever-growing dumpster fire. What do you guys think of of this strategy, uh, especially against the context of like what Ford has done, which at the time it didn't look great. They took a $2.7 hit, but boom, they're gone. They're free. They're in the lifeboat. Whereas GM is still, you know, slugging away at this. So, I mean, I'll turn over the mic here, but what I'm kind of thinking is people don't really want self-driving taxis. That's a thing I'm that's kind of dawning on me. I feel like people four or five years ago were like, it's going to be inevitable. We're all going to be doing this. And it's like, it's just, it's, is there a purpose for it? Yes. I've written these things. Some of them are very cool. Again, definitely a use case, but like, and it seems like the technology may be there, but like regulation is a challenge. The use cases specifically, where does this stuff actually be needed? I throw up my hands. I don't know. I mean, to me, General Motors, like, sort of, like, challenges in this quagmire are, like, a more of a cautionary tale for the industry writ large. So that's my little soapbox, actually. And I'm not against the tech either. I just, to me, this has been a very unique um, dumpster fire. 
So what do you think there, Jeremy? I think I am extremely unsurprised that uh, autonomous driverless vehicles are doing things, stupid things like blocking emergency vehicles and driving into fresh concrete. Um, that is like, oh, haha, that's, that's, you know, that's really dumb. You know, you got to fix this. One drags a pedestrian um, and kills them. That is a different matter entirely. Um, again, not, you know, in my view, tragic, but also not surprising. Um, and I think we have to, we have to look at it, you know, through the right lens too. um, several years ago, a, um, an autonomous, you know, in name only Uber, um, hit a hit and killed a, a person on a bicycle in, in Arizona, um, that had a person behind the wheel. You know, so it, it wasn't the thing that you could, you know, you could point a finger at the person who's supposed to be looking and looking to take over um, the, the actual human being. In this case, there's nobody to point to other than the software. Um, it was a it was a, a mistake by the people who, who programmed the car. Um, so the fact that it's that it's blowing up into, a, you know, a much bigger piece where, you know, people are losing their jobs the company is losing its right to even operate, you know, it's, there's no scapegoat here other than the, the vehicle just wasn't ready. Um, so, you know, Hey, it's not ready. Get them off the road. Um, I do, however, believe that it is still inevitable that it's going to happen. Um, I mean, total recall has told us that Johnny cabs are on the corner for a while now. Um, how, how there, there isn't actually a Johnny cab company, uh, floating out there. I don't know. Um, but, it, it's going to come. Um, it's just, I think, I think we have to take baby steps to get there. I don't, you know, I don't agree with the Tesla model of, you know, charging people huge amounts of money, calling it beta and saying like, well, it's your fault if it breaks. Um, you are the driver, you're the human. I don't think that's great. I also don't think it's great that we're putting these things that obviously can potentially put humans in danger on the roads. Um, there, you know, obviously is another flip side that, that indicates that these things are not terribly unsafe. Like if you look at the, the number of miles driven, the number of chips that they've taken and the number of, you know, terrible mistakes that they've made, it probably is better than what a human would, what, you know, humans do in that, that same time period. However, you have to have a, you have to have a, you know, a no sum policy in, you know, when, when we're talking these devices. Um, there isn't a human to point blame at. So the blame goes to the object itself. Um, so sad that it happened. Um, I hate to, you know, see that kind of thing happen. Um, I also don't know if you don't put these things on the road, how they're ever going to get to the point where, you know, they, they are fully safe and never going to make a mistake like that. But, um, I just think we, we, you know, we need to take a step back and slow roll this process out a little bit. Um, make sure that all your code is is working exactly to the uh, be best degree possible um before we start um before we allow them to uh take another human life all right let's uh let's move along here to speed limiters we'll close things out here ntsb uh again uh reminds uh that speed limiter tech uh isn't necessarily great the there was a fatal crash that um where the car was going triple the speed limit uh, this is interesting that uh, they're they're not thrilled with how NHTSA has been handling this. So a lot of acronyms kind of fighting with each other and throwing mud. 
um, this was a charger in Vegas, one of the crashes anyway, was doing 103 and it hit a minivan. So uh, that's that was not good, obviously. Um, although the driver there was uh, found to be having uh, used drugs, which I think that obviously was a perhaps obviously even bigger uh, factor than any speed limiter. Uh, this has been a pretty big debate. Uh, whenever we do stories on these things, they get a lot of comments. Uh, people tend to click on them. You know, this is, it's obviously a bit of a, you know, a, a spicy issue. So. Yep. <laughs> a spicy issue for sure. Do you have a position on that, Jeremy? Well, I, I mean, do I have a position on speed limiters? I don't think anyone needs to be in a car driving 103 and a 35. Um, you know, nor do I. I, that's, that's excessive. That is throw the book at them, you know, especially yeah. they're high on drugs. Um, yeah. you know, tragedy is, is, you know, a good reason to take a look at it. Um, I don't think anyone needs to be doing that. I also don't know how, how, you know, there's, there's a side of me that says, oh, I don't want computers controlling my car and, and, you know, telling it what it can and can't do. Um, but I also am not naive enough to realize that it, it does that already. You know, every car that you buy today nudges you in your lane properly. It slams on the brakes when it thinks you're going to, you know, hit someone or something. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how you implement it. I don't know how you say like, you know, double the speed limit 70 is okay, but triple the speed limit, you know, a hundred that's, that's not okay. Like, and who makes that decision? Um, and then the other thing is like, you know, I don't think anyone needs to be doing 103 and a 35, but you know, if you, if you live out in the middle of nowhere and you have somebody who's bleeding out in your car and you're trying to get to the hospital as soon as possible, do I want my car telling me how fast I can drive if I, as a human deem that, you know, I'm not putting anyone lives, any lives at risk other than, you know, my own. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't have a strong take or read on it. Um, I, I would love to see how they're, you know, how they think that they're, they're going to implement this properly. Um, and, you know, not take away rights, uh, from people that, that, that they currently enjoy, um, and doing it in a way that makes sense. I don't know. Joel thoughts. Yeah, I, it, it's, it's tricky to know exactly what the best move there is because I know that, that like you said, there's a part of me that's like, I don't necessarily like the idea of having the outright performance of my vehicle limited. Um, I, I don't know. I, I mean, it's maybe kind of a selfish and dumb idea, <laughs> dumb idea, but yeah, there it is. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's kind of, <laughs> kind of an American thing where it's like, uh, don't infringe on my freedom. Um, but also, I mean, there's no reason for you to really ever be doing more than like 90 miles an hour maximum on any kind of U.S. public road. Because I think the highest interstate speed limits are like 85, I think. There are a couple of 85 mile an hour speed limits in like Texas and Montana. Um, so I don't know. I guess I could maybe almost see like a cap at like 90 miles an hour. Provided that like 
there is a way to switch it off like for on track kind of driving because i mean that's still a thing that people do it's definitely a small it's definitely a small group of people but um being able to disable that at certain times obviously that runs into the issue of like how easy is it is it to defeat like does it need to be does it need to be geofenced um which that makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable from a kind of general privacy kind of thing. Um, I mean, I don't necessarily want that kind of info. I mean, probably the companies probably have most of that information anyway, just including the car companies particularly, but also like Google, Apple, et cetera. Um, Though I can potentially see with like, geofence stuff being a bit of an issue when say there's construction going on and maybe like the speed limits have been updated and that hasn't been changed on the car that could go either way either the construction is done and it's and the speed limit is back up and now your car is stuck at a certain speed or uh at kind of too low of a speed or the other way around where like that hasn't been updated and there is construction and, but you're still being allowed to go like 30 miles an hour above the speed limit or from just a practicality standpoint where the flow of traffic is still moving much above the construction zone speed limit, but because your car has the limiter, it's keeping you right at that limit and you're now becoming a problem on the road that could potentially create a more dangerous situation because you're going much slower than everybody else and closing speeds are a very big factor whereas like if you were to have like if somebody rear ends you at 80 while you're doing like this the construction zone limit of 50 that's way worse than if it was like 80 into like your car doing like 70 or something it's a really complex thing. It's it's a, I think a surprisingly complex thing, yeah. and I don't know that there's necessarily one good or easy or right answer. Yeah, I wonder if there's a correlation. Uh, obviously, I haven't looked up this data, but I wonder if there's a correlation on accidents citing excessive speed and people who have a history of you know have a very poor driving record. Um, maybe there's um maybe there's a a way to install speed limiters on cars for people with a history of you know getting caught speeding and you know is that like a a first step um i think there'd be a lot more public acceptance to something like that like you know you you get a speeding ticket okay fine you get a second speeding ticket they say okay you pay a big fine here um and if you get you know, if you get a third speeding ticket, your car is going to get a limiter on it. You know, I think there'd be a lot more public acceptance to something like that than a just, you know, de facto, every car comes with this. And, you know, some bureaucrat decided what it was going to be and and how it was going to work. So maybe there's maybe there's something there. Yeah, that actually sounds very interesting. I, I think I was listening to something not long ago that did suggest that that there can be a lot of correlation. Like if you are racking up lots of driving infractions, there's much higher chance of you being in some kind of accident of some sort, potentially involving excessive speed. That that's, that's a really interesting idea. I kind of like that. And, and that would definitely, I think fit a lot of Americans perspective of like, 
I didn't do anything. Why should I have to? Yeah, right. Why should I have to uh, have... Pay the price for other people's this, mistakes. Yeah. Even if it doesn't necessarily affect you that much in practice, but it's kind of the principle of it. Yep. I did not think you guys would have that these measured and thought out even as you're thinking about takes on this. So this would be a throwaway thing to end up the news section, but are you are man. you saying that are you are you saying that we're either unreasonable or flippant? I'm not sure. Uh, maybe both. I don't know. A little bit of both. But hey, you had opinions stronger than I did. It, it is it, it's hard not to to be a little bit, you know, have a little bit of a nuanced take on this. Like do I want my car to have a speed limiter? No, but I also haven't gotten a speeding ticket in a decade. So I don't, you know, I don't think that I really have it, this issue, but I see a lot of people doing stupid things on the roads that maybe they, they should have one in their car. I don't know. And kind of along those lines, I think, I mean, there's, there's a, definitely a difference between doing, say, like 80 in a 70 as opposed to like, for sure. 50 in a in a 30 like in a residential area i it's not necessarily like outright top speeds but mm -hmm. like what the speeds are in in certain contexts and things like for sure i mean like doing like 50 in a 20 or a 30 is like in a residential area where there's lots of pedestrians is a much much bigger thing than doing like 75 or 80 on the interstate mm -hmm where there isn't necessarily pedestrian traffic lots of people are also moving at fairly high rate of speed yeah so it's yeah it's a it's a complex issue actually <laughs> all righty then uh let's move along to the reviews section over an hour into the show uh we're going to keep this short because we uh yeah, I think we're reaching the limits to, you know, even with this is a long holiday weekend, we're recording this on a Monday, which is very unusual for us. We're going to probably get this out a little bit early. Hey, maybe you're driving to see family this weekend. If you need some more at Autoblog Podcast, we're there for you. Um, that being said, we'll try to keep this fairly tight here. Uh, we are going to talk about the uh, tracks and the Genesis G90. So I will let, uh, Joel, you drove the tracks, right? Let's... Mm -hmm. uh, Let's hear about it. Yeah, so I got a little bit of time in the Chevy tracks uh, thanks to our West Coast editor, James Riswick. I was visiting with him a little bit during the LA Auto Show, and he had a couple of vehicles coming in from the fleet. And, well, both of us, honestly, thoroughly impressed by the tracks. I, I really like it. It's a really good little SUV. Um, I've been seeing them a lot lately around here uh, because, you know, domestic cars sell well in Detroit. And I've always, and I've been impressed with how they look. It's proportioned really nicely. It looks low and wide and like it's a good looking vehicle. And I'm very pleased that it drives quite well too. I was really impressed with the chassis. It's really, it's really stiff and tight and it, it's responsive, it handles well, it rides well. The steering's a little numb, like I'd like a little bit more feedback there. And I'd also like to have paddle shifters available for it. But that aside, I mean, it's a spunky little three-cylinder. It feels much punchier than the numbers would indicate. Because it, it's got good it's got good torque. It's not like a barn burner of any sort, but you know, it keeps up with traffic well. 
it has a kind of a nice little growl to it without being like rough and coarse and annoying even like at higher rpm it's just it's an impressive little car that it's stylish it's affordable it's well equipped it handles well it rides well it's just it's a really excellent little vehicle i'm very happy with it okay i the big thing for me uh was the styling i remember seeing them because again this is this is michigan like you see a lot of cars development mules and then pre-pros and then just the cars usually get out and people buy them sooner than perhaps other parts it's a pretty looking good looking car i mean i drove the first gen first generation tracks um in a preview drive i think this was in upstate new york uh around the, the new york auto show and it was not great and i never have been very impressed with the car just for its driving dynamics or its appearance even i don't think it's a great value you know it's i wouldn't call it a flat out penalty box but i've never really said this is the car you should go get but right now i think it looks great and based on what you're saying it's sounds like it drives pretty well yeah and i think it would be a great basis for if chevy wanted to expand the line a little bit and offer like an ss with more power and maybe those paddle shifters and yeah slightly sportier suspension it's i think it would be a great base for something like that i'd also i'd even love to see like hybrid or electric versions of it in a lot of ways i kind of feel like if the chevy bolt ev looked like the tracks they would have been selling way more of them because it's an attractive looking thing the bolt much as i love it and it is cute in some ways it also looks a little dorky and i i think i think a lot of people felt that way the tracks actually looks sporty and aggressive and fun and playful uh so i would love to see it expand in some ways um both kind of performance and possibly electrification wise i know that that would add some cost but i think they've got a strong base here and you know as long as they still have kind of entry-level stuff that would be great and maybe the fact that it must be fairly cheap to make would hopefully make other versions of it be comparatively affordable to other vehicles on the market all right this is somewhat affordable so we'll transition over to the hyundai ionic 6. i just drove it last week and came away pretty impressed uh really the better authority on this is actually joel you did the buying guide on it you drove it uh, I guess this was when I'm not sure when you drove it, but you drove it fairly recently. And, uh, you know, it's you get some pretty competitive range. Uh, the one I tested was just under forty seven thousand dollars. So not cheap. Um, really attractive car. I thought it really looked like it was from the future, almost even more so than the Ionic 5, which it sort of shares the same genetics and electrical components and underpinnings and all of that good stuff. Uh, it really makes the case for the car, though. Like, if you want a, a swoopy, almost old school, like, tell me if I'm taking this too far, but I would almost say it's like an Art Deco teardrop design going back to the 30s. Uh, and I think they were going for that. But I was very impressed with it. It drove very well. Um, you know, I, I really enjoyed my time in the car, to be honest. Um, so it, you know, definitely the kind of thing that stood out for the neighbors, that's for sure. Um, I thought it was a little tight inside. Um, that was, you know, I, and I'm not the tallest guy in the world, but, it, you know, it's a little tight to get in and out, especially when you're trying to, like, 
you know, trying to get my five-year-old in and out of the back seat. Like, you know, he's not a big guy. It was a little tough to get everybody in and out of there. Uh, but, you know, it's a car, not a crossover. So I really liked it. I, I really did. I, what did you think of it when you drove it earlier, Joel? I'm a huge fan of the Ionic 6. It's, mm -hmm. I think, really pretty, really distinctive. Yeah, I think you're yeah. dead on with kind of the 30s Art Deco kind of vibes. And, and that pays big dividends on range. It's one of the most efficient electric cars you can get in the United mm -hmm. States because it's just so slippery. And sort of the side effect of that is, as you noticed, the low roof line, particularly for the rear. Um, I didn't find the front seats to be too difficult to get in and out of, or and I felt like they had reasonable headroom, but the back seats... It does feel a little bit close back there, and I I didn't open up the back seat the back doors that often, but I can imagine that the the entry can be a little bit tight, especially if you're putting in a car seat. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the old Chrysler 200 that had a oh, wow. really horrible <laughs> rear door opening because of that super swoopy, low rounded shape. I don't think the Hyundai is that bad, but it it is a trade off. One of the things that I really like about the Ionic 6, though, is that, and I've talked to John Snyder about this, too, that he noticed it, too, that the suspension is a little bit firmer and a little mm -hmm. bit stiffer than the Ionic 5, and I would even say compared to the EV6, and I felt like that okay, okay. contributed to a kind of sportier overall feel um, than those other EGMP cars, which I That's quite liked. Yeah, I agree. That's actually a really interesting take. I'm not sure if I would say it was noticeably different, but I, I definitely see where you're going with it. And yeah, I, I, when people ask me like, Hey, what EV should I get? Inevitably I mentioned two or three of these sort of, uh, siblings. Hey, you know, you might want to look at this and that can be a tough sell, especially in like a domestic leaning Midwest. It, Frankly, these cars have all been on sale for longer than, you know, anything but the Mach-E, I guess. But Chevy's EVs are still slowly getting out there. Uh, but if you're looking for something, I mean, these are, I think, very compelling. Again, it's, I think the EV6 is perhaps the most, like, well-rounded because it's a crossover, but it's also got that kind of, like, car-like vibe. And then the EV5, or EV5, Ionic 5 is that's not going to be necessarily for everybody with that kind of tron like thing then the the ionic six you get more of the car sort of vibe so perhaps you know among these three it might be the right car for you i would say if you're an ev buyer as you're benchmarking against the mach e the you know the volkswagens the id all the different ids you could get at this point the id4 the more of them that are on the way of course the chevy ones and you know the other ones too so I came away impressed. It was cool. It was a cool car to drive. It really was. Mm -hmm. And I love, I love all of the details on the interior and mm -hmm. the exterior. It feels very unique and futuristic. Indeed. Indeed. All right. So that's all the time we have this week. Uh, it's, I think we gave you guys your calories this week uh, for a, a long podcast. Uh, hope you, uh, hope you enjoy it over the, uh, the holiday weekend. Happy Thanksgiving. Be safe out there. And we'll see you next week.